Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. As students return to schools across the country, this episode of the Brookings Cafeteria features a rebroadcast of a recent online event from the Brown Center on Education Policy at Brookings about the present and future of early childhood education in the U.S. in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Brookings scholar John Vallant, director of the Brown Center, moderated a panel discussion with Miriam Calderon, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy and Early Learning at the U.S. Department of Education, Jenna Conway, the Deputy Superintendent of Early Childhood Education in the Virginia Department of Education, and Christina Weiland, Associate Professor in the School of Education at the University of Michigan. Vallant was also on a recent episode of The Current Podcast, on which he addressed what back-to-school looks like during COVID-19. You can find that on our website, and you can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get information about and links to all our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, The Current, and our events podcast. And now, here's John Vallant with a panel on the future of early childhood education after COVID-19. Good afternoon, and good morning to those joining you, joining us from out west. I'm John Vallant, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the director of the Brown Center on Education Policy at Brookings. It's my privilege to welcome you for today's discussion on the future of early childhood education. As many of you watching are surely aware, kids' experiences in early childhood are critically important in shaping their educational and life trajectories. It's a pivotal time for brain development and for building social emotional skills. We've known for a long time that providing children with high quality care can have extraordinarily positive long-term effects and be a very good investment for government. The challenge has been in providing those high quality opportunities to as many families as possible and in the most equitable ways possible. With that context, this has been an especially challenging time for the early childhood sector. As we'll discuss today, COVID has deeply affected the sector in a lot of ways. That begins with those who have worked day in and day out with young children, despite the risks to their own health, often with inexcusably low pay. And many people working in the sector have seen enrollment declines and budget concerns while confronting a very uncertain future. Of course, COVID isn't behind us. The newest challenge is the Delta variant, and its timing feels especially cruel, given that it's emerging before vaccines are available to young children and just as schools and colleges are opening up. But there's also some opportunity. The Biden administration has made investment in early learning a core priority, and Congress is now debating a budget resolution that has potential to bring significant resources and reform to the sector. Of course, the fate of that budget resolution remains very unclear. We have a terrific group of panelists to talk us through these many complex issues today. Miriam Calderon is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Policy and Early Learning in the Office of Elementary and Secondary Education at the U.S. Department of Education. Miriam had a very rich and varied set of experiences before joining the Biden administration. That includes most recently overseeing the early learning division in the state of Oregon, as well as advising the Obama administration as a member of the Domestic Policy Council. She also served as director of early childhood education at DC Public Schools and focused on early education policy while at the National Council of La Raza. Jenna Conway is the deputy superintendent in the division of early childhood care and education at the Virginia Department of Education. She previously worked as the Assistant Superintendent of Early Childhood at the Louisiana Department of Education, where she led the state's effort to unify its child care, Head Start, and pre-kindergarten systems. She also has city government experience. In her case, that's with the New York City Housing Authority. Christina Weiland is an Associate Professor at the School of Education at the University of Michigan and in the Ford School of Public Policy, where she co-directs the Education Policy Initiative. 
Her research focuses on the effects of early childhood interventions and public policies on children's development, especially on children from families with low income. She's a longtime research partner of the Boston Public Schools and co-author of the book, Cradle to Kindergarten, A New Plan to, to Combat Inequality. Um, a couple of logistical notes before we get started. We have an hour for the first 45 minutes or so. We'll have a, a moderated discussion with our panelists. And then for the last 15 minutes, uh, we're, we'll do Q&A from the audience. Thank you to those of you who have submitted questions. We got a whole bunch of terrific questions. If you have not yet submitted a question but would like to, uh, you can email it to events at brookings.edu or submit it via Twitter at, at brookingsed or by using the hashtag future of education. Um, okay, with that, Chris, if it's okay, I'd like to start with you. Um, so you've been, Chris, you've been doing research to help us understand the, the current state of the early childhood education sector and how COVID-19 has affected the sector and its families. Could you give us a bit of an overview of where ECE is right now and what you see as the main challenges? Sure, and I wanna thank by, start by thanking you for inviting us all to be here today and to say how thrilled I am to get to learn from Jenna and Miriam today. We are lucky in the ECE field to have amazing leaders across the country, but these two are really among the best of our best. Um, so in terms of where we are, right? So EC is really in a tough spot at the moment. So in terms of program stability, um, learning setbacks for young children, experiences that they've had over the last 18 months, which for some of them is actually the majority of their young lives at this point, um, and working conditions for teachers. These are all dimensions that are really critically important um, in which we've seen uh, a lot of trouble. Um, and we know from over 300 studies on the effects of this crisis that uh, we have a lot of work to do. And now we're facing this curveball of the Delta variant, which is making things even more unstable. And at the same time, some of our uh, policymakers have now shown a reluctance to really follow public health guidance to really help uh, those programs recover and get kids and teachers back into classrooms um, as safely as possible. Um, so that's where we are, um, and it's important to think about how we got here and to be clear about why we're here. And that's because as a nation, we have never invested in building a high-quality ECE system that really works for everyone, unlike a lot of our peer nations that have done so. Uh, we have for decades substantially underpaid our early educators relative to K-12. That's true even when they have the same uh, requirements or educational requirements and experiences as K-12 teachers, and many of them have made poverty wages and really struggled. Uh, programs, too, have operated on really thin margins for a long time, and families have struggled to find and afford high-quality care for their young kids. Um, so, you know, with that kind of foundation, it's no surprise COVID hit ECE so hard. Um, we're still continuing to see costs are up, and enrollment appears to still be at least a little bit down. It was definitely down throughout last year as much as 42% in some places. Um, Teachers are navigating a new normal along with programs, um, and we have seen a spike uh, that's been very concerning in mental health concerns among early educators, as well as programs that are now struggling to find enough teachers to fully reopen. Um, so these problems of the last 18 months are really, I think, going to be compounded moving into the next chapter of um, the pandemic. Um, as you said, John, we do have a moment of optimism. We have had um, historic investments, the largest we've ever had in ECE through the American Rescue Plan. Um, and that's a real credit to the Biden administration, to Congress and to the advocates who've made it happen. 
And there's really tremendous opportunity to be bold and to make lasting important changes for kids and families. So Jenna's team in Virginia and her partnership with Daphne Basuk at the University of Virginia, the ways in which they're using this to build rigorous evidence and systems there, we'll hopefully get to learn more about, but there are um, states and localities across the country who are trying to make those kinds of bold changes with these new investments. But at the same time, it's really only a fraction of what we're going to need to build the system that our kids, families, and educators deserve. And that's why the American Families Plan, um, which I know we're going to talk about more, is really so important um, as we think about pivoting from this moment of historic crisis to what really can be a moment of historic opportunity. Great. Thanks, Chris. And, and Jenna, I'll bring you on. On, on, that, on that very point, on sort of pivoting from challenge to opportunity. So you've worked on early childhood issues at the state level for about a decade now, previously in Louisiana and now in Virginia. And I'm curious to hear your perspective on where we stand and what you see as the key challenges today. Absolutely, and, and thanks again for, for being here. This is so exciting to hear that there's so much interest in, in this topic. As Christina noted, COVID has been catastrophic for young learners. And so the most enormous challenge in front of us right now is how do you keep up the energy and stamina to nimbly respond and continue to support this pandemic, which even though we have most of our programs open and many schools and Head Starts across the country will be open for in-person learning, we're certainly not back to normal, right? And, 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 and Delta is, you know, unfortunately really creating, you know, a whole host of additional challenges. But we're also trying to fix an early childhood system that was pretty darn broken before the pandemic. Um, so consider t- teacher turnover. So in Virginia, we're about to put out a study that shows that even before the pandemic, over an eight-month period, um, one in four teachers was leaving, right, which really kind of averages out for a year, about a 40% turnover rate. That actually seems downright rosy compared to what our programs are facing now. I've seen this firsthand. After 16 months of being out of preschool, my three-year-old just started back 14 days ago, and just yesterday I got a message saying this teacher has left and another teacher is there. We're providing immediate cash assistance as we speak to programs, um, which is really important, but that's only a Band-Aid, a temporary solution. And it's not very inspiring, I would say, to imagine spending a half a billion dollars just to claw back to 40% turnover uh, annually, particularly when you think about what that means for kids, right? There's no ingredient more important to quality than teachers. And if you are dealing with a revolving door of educators, it sort of puts health safety, and learning in jeopardy. So we're trying to balance getting dollars out the door, keeping up on the health and safety guidance, keeping folks calm, reminding folks that preschool still matters, while also obsessing with three things. One, governance. We have to, at the federal, state, and local level, speak with one voice about health, safety, and learning, whether that's for family day homes, child care programs, faith-based, Head Start or public schools. Um, And we've got to use our levers at the state level, which are regulation, funding, and influence to really relentlessly drive outcomes, right? We're obsessed in Virginia on giving every child the opportunity to come to kindergarten ready, right? Well, we're also responding. Second, we've got to increase access. More families and kids need to be eligible. We have to pay based on the cost to provide these experiences than rather on, than on a flawed market. Um, and we've got to make sure that 
while the system continues to run on parental contributions, there's a balancing act between regulation and compensation, right? And really figuring out how do we get more more kids solved with a focus on those that are furthest from opportunity. And lastly, we're obsessed on collective measurement and improvement. We are thinking about every single infant, toddler, and preschool classroom in the Commonwealth of Virginia that takes public funding. Where you know it goes beyond just thinking about sites, but every child is in a classroom with a set of educators and is providing an experience that can make a difference in their lives. And so there have been some very rightful criticisms of some of our quality rating systems, probably too much emphasis on rating, not enough on support and improvement. But we can't stop now as we think about massive investments in this space. We have to know that those investments are turning into experiences that promote better positive child outcomes. And so in Virginia, similar to work done in Louisiana, we built one of the nation's first uniform, uh, as I call it, non-optional, but basically if you take a public dollar, we care about the experiences that you're providing for children. We look at the adult child interactions in all of those classrooms, um, and then we systematically support everybody to be a little bit better tomorrow than they are today with the goal of driving better child outcomes. And what we've seen in Louisiana and what we're hopeful for in Virginia is that you can make a huge, you can make huge improvements in terms of childcare experiences while also building some of the more traditional building blocks of kind of teachers earning credentials, but day in, day out, obsessing on what's happening in the classroom and figuring out how we build the right data systems and partner with the right researchers to figure out what matters most and how do we get there in an affordable way while dramatically increasing the number of kids and families who can benefit from early childhood. Thanks, Jenna. And, and Miriam, so, so you've worked at the state level before and now um, sit at the federal level and you're working on the Biden administration's early learning plans. And I'm curious how, how you see the biggest issues today and also if you could speak to what are the administration's top priorities right now in early learning. Sure. Thanks, John. Um, and thanks so much to Brookings for including me in this conversation. And I think as, as Chris said, um, I learned so much from, from these two women, fellow panelists, um, about, about this work. And so I'm really honored to be, um, here with them. Um, so I think as you noted, I have had this really varied experience, um, a set of experiences and opportunities to see the field from different levels, started my career in Head Start. Um, I helped implement universal preschool in my hometown of Washington, D.C., which is one of the most robust programs, was working in Oregon, supporting child care and, and our sector during COVID. Um, and now and, you know, uh, early on in my career, when I left programs, worked, uh, got to really work on this set of federal policy issues from a civil rights lens um, and really thinking about immigrant children, our dual language learners and equity. So I, I carry that with me. And I will say this is hands down. Um, and I think others will agree. This is the most historic moment in early childhood. And we are on the precipice of something extraordinary and um, something I've never seen, and I don't think many people who have been working in this field um, would disagree with me. Um, when I think about the Biden vision, 
Um, one of the things that is so extraordinary about it to me, and there's a lot, is that it is grounded first in um, families, I think, and the American Families Plan. And what we know about the science of child development and lessons that have been reinforced for me in my career and all of my experiences is that we uh, we will see the outcomes for children um, when we really ensure that we take care of the adults in the children's lives, um, and particularly those families. So children are thriving and can be well when the adults are thriving and well around them and those most significant um, relationships in their lives. So the American Families Plan is a very bold vision. We have paid family leave. We have, you know, the child tax credit. Um, There is so much in this plan that is really focused on supporting families um, so that families can help their children to thrive. And one of the most the boldest parts about this, I think, is, is the investment in early care and education. I think for a long time, um, we, we are long overdue in really thinking about the fact that families need a strong early care and education sector, right? The, that investing in high quality child care and preschool education opportunities for more families in our country um, is going to lift more children, more families in a, into opportunity and their children will be thriving. And that's, you know, what I want to kind of focus on within the American family plan is the bold part. Chris talked about this. Um, Jenna touched on this. Uh, The majority of state um, systems, early care and education systems in states and in communities are based on what parents can afford to pay. And parents cannot afford to pay the, for the quality care in the sector, you know, and we see all kinds of market failures as a, as a result of very small public investment in a lot of communities and an, and a real over-reliance on, on parents paying for a service, right, that they can't afford to pay any more for. And certainly um, that makes it difficult for them to find quality and care that meets their needs and preferences. So the $450 $450 billion, see, I can't even really say billion that well, it's still hard for me to take in, um, is in, into early care and education system um, is, is just a historic opportunity to really expand the supply of quality um, infant and toddler childcare and preschool opportunities and make it more, more um, available um, to children and families who, who go without it because they can't find it in their community um, and they can't afford it. Um, even in many cases when it is available. Um, so, you know, the, this is about quality. So the investments are there. This is about bringing the resources, but also ensuring that there's quality. So, uh, we, you know, there's a huge priority placed on wages for the early care and education workforce, um, so that we can recognize them and treat them as professionals. Um, address their working conditions, compensate them, address the turnover and the churn that Jenna was just talking about. That is a huge element of quality. You know, we also know other things are really important. The work that Chris does in her research, uh, you know, the uh, curriculum, the experiences that children have in these classrooms um, and the experiences families have matter greatly. Um, so research-based curricula, class sizes, making sure that the, that the programs um, are are really aligned to the best practices. And we know in the science of child development is an important part of making the investments that really support us to be able to do that as a critical um, really component of this. And I think the last thing I'll say is that, you know, as we 
Um, we touched on the American Rescue Plan, which was a incredible uh, investment and infusion of resources into states to be able to, to stabilize the sector. The American Families Plan really builds on that. We know we need long-term systemic reform. This is about um, stabilizing the sector, getting more supports to children and families as a result of the impacts of COVID. But we want uh, we want to build back to a better system, as our president talks about, right? And that's really the vision in the American Families Plan and the investments that we're proposing um, in early care and education. Thanks, Mary. And, and Jenna, so um, I'm curious, like specifically, I'm sure you've you've spent a lot of time uh, reading up on the American Families Plan, and I'm sure you're you're very on top of sort of some of the ideas that are out there. But I'm curious specifically about how the federal government can be most helpful to states, to you at the state level, and, and what, uh, what exactly you're hoping to see from Washington. And is there anything in there that's being talked about that makes you nervous about what could be coming? Absolutely. So I think I, I share some of the excitement about putting families at the center of this effort. And, I, and you know, we've had a blueprint for this in terms of the child care and development block grant and really some of the additional flexibility made possible under that. But due to scarce funding creates a scarcity mindset and we've never really made the investment in many of the ways that we know work best for kids and families, right? So this isn't rocket science. It's really about having the dollars in a sustainable way. And I feel like the American Rescue Plan dangles those out and you know we're very hopeful that we don't kind of have a cliff effect in two years because the American Families Plan steps in and is able to let us follow through on, on that promise. It shouldn't just be, you know, in a rainy day that we respond, but we need this sort of 365 days a year. So the sustainable family and following through on that promise to families as they think about the children over that birth to five period is critically um, important. I would say a couple of things if I had a wish list. Uh, you know, one big challenge is that it really doesn't matter the name on the outside of the building or the funding source. What matters is what's happening. In, and yet states and the feds and everybody puts so many strings on who's eligible and for what they're eligible for. So for one of the biggest things that the feds can do, particularly across childcare subsidy and Head Start, is to have kind of a line on common purpose and sort of, you know, two words, categorical eligibility, right? Like, let's simplify, let's spend less dollars, less time certifying people to be eligible on and off programs and really focus on saying, here are the communities that and the kids and the families that we're worried about, with an equity lens, we should prioritize them, but we have to make it more simple. It is insane to think about how many of our resources go just determining somebody eligible or not. And that I think is, 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 it's a mindset shift that we've started with the block ramp, but really important. I think as we think big picture in Virginia, we're very excited last year, we passed a law that dedicates future marijuana legalization revenues to early childhood, to preschool in particular. Um, and for the first time we realized, oh my gosh, we might actually have enough dollars to serve every hour three and four year old but where will we put them, right? As we look across our public and private landscape and there's not a lot of resources for capital funding and there's not a lot of vehicles to help expand current facilities and think about building new ones, right? And again, we often know you visit any elementary school, you can guess that the pre-K classroom is in the trailer in the back, right? We've all gotten used to these incredible warm and loving childcare settings, but 
Like it, they are making the most of nothing and they really deserve the kind of capital investments over time, made even more important in terms of air quality and COVID. Um, we need a little time, right? And really sort of thinking through, I love the urgency on using the American Rescue Plan, but thinking about how we can roll those dollars over, right? And provide the right flexibility for states. And then last year, this last one, this is a little bit of an out there then, but I sort of obsessively think about health, safety, and learning. And Health and safety obviously have been foremost in our minds in the last year, but I do think we could use some inspiration from the feds and like looking to kind of states that are taking innovative steps on licensing. A lot of the brain space of our staff, our educators who work across our early child landscape are so focused on health and safety. And it's important in terms of infants and toddlers among our most vulnerable citizens and members of our society but I think there's got to be with modern technology and the investments that we're calling for different ways to think about how do we monitor? How often should we be visiting? What are the best ways to get down to sort of safe setting? We do an extraordinary job in licensed centers of keeping kids safe. The challenge is many programs, particularly some of our home-based programs, don't want to be licensed because of the rigmarole and the burden and really thinking through how do we make sure wherever a child is being served, birth to five, that they're safe, healthy, and that they're promoting learning and that there's a right size across those three really important elements. Thanks, Jenna. And, and Miriam, I'm, I'm curious about any reactions you have to, to uh, Jenna's thoughts, but also stepping back a bit, I, I'm sure you're aware of this, but there's there's been an ongoing debate in the policy world, and this is in early childhood and it's elsewhere, about whether to make programs and resources universally universally available or to target them to the individuals who might benefit the most. And we, we just heard Jenna talking about eligibility and availability. Um, can you speak a bit to that? So with respect to early childhood, uh, the Biden administration has been pursuing universal pre-K rather than targeting new resources to the families who may be most in need or might benefit most from, from those resources. Can you talk about the thinking that underlies that approach? Sure, absolutely. So I, I would say first that um, the uh, Biden administration and our proposal both on uh, the uh, ch new investments in childcare as well as preschool um, do uh, work in a manner that, you know, in Oregon, so this is sort of a word that we use, sort of a, an approach to kind of targeted um, universalism, because I do think that there's a couple things that we know um, about, you know, kind of the, the state of play and how early care and education system, the, the consequences of, of limited public investment is that um, race, income, zip code are predictors of children, uh, whether children participate in a high quality childcare preschool experience before school. We also know that it has shaped the, the supply in particular communities. So communities where you have a concentration of families from low income backgrounds, um, you're going to see, you know, less supply of quality and accessibility unless there has been a robust investment of public funding. So we also know that um, families along a, a, a wide range of income, uh, a, a wide income spectrum struggle to afford um, the cost of quality. Um, and so 
Um, and we know that, um, you know, uh, these that so many children in our country um, increasingly spend time um, in the fir- in their first five years of life in care outside of, of, you know, with someone else outside of the care of their own family members. Um, and and, you know, I really let Jenna's frame about in the state of Virginia wanting to be able to touch all of those environments and settings that families choose um, for their early learning, early childhood uh, care experience um, is critical. So when we, uh, the way we have thought about this in our administration is to think first about um, how do we prioritize um, communities uh, where there is, you know, where there is a where they, that are really highest needs, where there is a concentration of underserved children and families who currently lack access and um, really build programs that are inclusive in those communities and prioritize them first. And states will have a plan then to think about how to, to grow these programs and build supply and capacity um, to, to more communities and their states. We know that states have been doing this work. We were doing this work in Oregon, and then they have made really important advances and really understanding um, where there are um, uh, where there are families that have been underserved, where they are concentrated in those communities, who are the providers that are best equipped to serve those children and families um, through the preschool development um, grants, for example, uh, in the past couple of years, every state worked on a needs assessment, right? And they looked at almost almost every state was funded and, and all of the states that were funded, they were required to look at these needs assessments. But this has been happening well before even preschool development grants. And so that is, you know, the way we uh, are approaching this is to think partnering with states, with communities, um, they know and have the data to make the best decisions in context about who should be prioritized. Um, use that equity lens, really think about race, income, and zip code as the predictors, B- partner with the existing programs, whether that's a family child care provider, uh, you know, another home-based provider, uh, a public school setting, a Head Start program, and build access um, for families in those communities first, and then continue to, um, to expand from there. I think the other point that I'll make about that, that often um, I think is talked about in our field and is certainly important in our policy conversations is if we want to stop the siloing of classrooms by funding stream um, that Jenna was talking about, it's also important to think about building programs in this manner. So often because of the way we do means tested or we say that you qualify for this funding stream based on this income or your ability or some other um, you know, a a factor or consideration, we end up building programs that way too. And that's just the the, the easiest default. And when you're actually thinking about uh, scale and universality, because we want to be able to help the maximum amount of families, and we know all families need more support to be able to afford affordable childcare and preschool opportunities, um, you know, it, then it gives you a, a, a different ability to think about how you would scale towards universal um, and then how you can ensure that children are not segregated or siloed by income or ability. And, and so this approach, we think, is going to work. It's going to work 
is, is really the way to do that to make sure we also can have diverse and more inclusive classrooms. And we're not, and we're moving away from that unfortunate reality in our field that, you know, I've seen happen a lot and I've tried to work, um, work against resolving, which is that we end up um, putting children in programs and classrooms when we mean te- means test them um, by funding streams. And so this approach um, will allow us to build, partner with states and really to build from communities, but certainly keeping that equity lens. Who do we who do we serve first in communities? How do we help states do that? And how do we make sure that when they build those programs in their, those communities, they're inclusive, right? Um, and not separating children by funding streams. Right, thanks. I would just add, if I could, um, that, you know, I think this flies a little bit under people's radar, but early childhood, because of all the factors that Miriam's talking about, about income cutoffs and parent pay and different programs, is actually more segregated than K-12, right? So we have a lot of attention to how segregated our high schools are, elementary schools, um, but in fact, our early childhood systems are, are, actually, are far worse um, in places where, you know, the, the norm, where you don't have universality like you do in, say, D.C., the system that um, Miriam led. And we know that young kids learn so much from each other that they're never going to be as uh, flexible cognitively as they will again. So it's really important that we are um, mixing them together, and, and that is part of um, expanding opportunity as well. Yeah, thanks, Chris. And Chris, I'm, I'm curious about uh, your thoughts on policy priorities more generally, whether it's uh, whatever research has taught us about what's more and less promising or just, just your thoughts on what we should be really focusing on. Yeah, I'll, I'll speak. Um, you know, everything that's been mentioned is so important. I will speak to the pieces that if they go away in the reconciliation um, process will break my heart the most from a research perspective. And, um, you know, one of those absolutely is the emphasis on pay parity for early educators. So, you know, from a social justice perspective, we can't keep paying um, uh, women and particularly women of color who disproportionately do this work um, less money than K-12 teachers, particularly when they have the same qualifications. Um, and that is undermining us from an economic perspective, whatever perspective you want to take, because they just walk out the door with the investment and then our kids lose out, our families lose out and our communities lose out. Um, so we can't keep doing that. <laughs> uh, so if that goes away, that would be very sad. I would say too that um, the plan has a really um, unusual uh, focus on the science of early childhood education and what we've learned over the last 15 years of what really makes early early childhood classrooms work well, right? So as um, Jenna emphasized, it's not enough to set up everything perfectly outside the school. What really matters to the to the little four-year-old or three-year-old is what is going on with their teacher in their classroom, right? That's the immediate um, impact of early childhood education for that. And so um, the plan is really specific that we need developmentally appropriate, and I hope it will become evidence-based curricula um, in these classrooms that are play-based and fun for children, but are intentional and really follow the science um, around how young children learn. Um, and at the same time, we've also learned a great deal about how best to support our teachers. So professional development um, is very common throughout early education and through K-12. And what we see particularly in early education is that coaching. So having somebody who visits your classroom and helps you troubleshoot the problems that are in front of you is the most impactful form of professional development and particularly when it's tied to an evidence-based um, curriculum. So I think there's some room for this to happen um, in the bill and these elements are, are mentioned, um, which again is somewhat unusual to see um, 
those sorts of details um, and really encouraging because it is a real attempt to follow the science of what kids need. Um, and then finally, the access pieces are just so critical, right? So we know that many families get stuck um, trying to navigate into the programs and that many middle-income families in particular uh, don't qualify for a program like Head Start um, or a means-tested state pre-K program and can't afford another option. And so it's really important that we are not systematically leaving um, families out of opportunity as we think about um, going big in early childhood. Thanks, and we, we got a couple of questions from um, audience members on pay parity. So that's a, uh, thanks for, for hitting that. It's also a nice reminder to, to put this out again. So if you, have, if you have questions you'd like to submit, we'll take them as they, as they come in. Um, by email at events at brookings.edu or um, by Twitter using the hashtag future of education. And um, so I want to kind of stick on the, the teacher question. And Miriam, I'll, I'll direct this to you, but really anyone who has thoughts, I'd be, I'd be curious uh, to hear them. So we know that recruiting, retaining, and developing teachers has for a very long time been a challenge in early childhood education. And if we are approaching a shift towards something that resembles universal pre-K in whatever form that might take, how do we ensure that we have enough of those excellent teachers around to, to make sure that we really do have a great teacher for every child? Sure, thanks um, for that. Uh, it's a critical um, issue, John. I think first, um, I would say that we, we need to begin um, by recognizing that we have a um, existing workforce. Um, our incumbent workforce that really is, a, a, is an asset um, to, to build upon um, in many ways. First, um, the, the linguistic and racial diversity of this current workforce is really important. We, are, we know in early childhood that um, the caregivers, the educators, the providers um, uh, tend to look more like the, uh, and reflect the diversity of the, of the children and the communities um, that they serve. Um, and so I think it is um, first and foremost, as we work towards this quality vision, it's to recognize that this is a field predominantly of, of at the same time, women who are low income um, and who have faced um, significant barriers uh, to accessing post-secondary degrees, higher education, um, have uh, turned over rapidly in many instances as a result of, of of poor wages, compensations have not have had very limited access to professional development and learning opportunities, um, and really pathways to be able to achieve at really advance um, as professionals. And so, I think. We need to be, and I think many states are, um, in, in a space of, of innovation um, in terms of, of building up our capacity to, to take what we know and what we see as working and scale that in terms of being able to invest in our incumbent workforce, right, and help them um, continue to improve their skills, get access to job-embedded coaching and professional development, and increase pathways to building on this current workforce. Um, increase their opportunities to, to advance in terms of degrees um, and credentials and preparation so that they have options in the field and pay attention to how we do that that is in the context of their current reality, 
right, around affordability of programs, the fact that they'll be working and participating in these types of programs. So that's first and foremost, retain that diversity, look at the incumbent workforce as the asset and build on it. Um, and, and really from the federal government, we want to be able to support states um, in building those systems and building that capacity, I think, as part of this program. At the same time, we need thousands of more teachers to make this a reality, right? And we, um, I know that in Oregon, I, as I went around the state, I said every, you know, I always ask this question, what's the biggest barrier that holds you back from being able to serve more children and families? And the question, um, the answer was always the same, rural, urban, suburban parts of our state, um, tribal communities, and it was finding a qualified workforce, right, um, that is willing to do this work. So, uh, I think that the the compensation and the salary issues are huge. Um, we cannot and, and should not ask educators to come into this field or to stay in this field and upskill and, and increase their credentials um, and, and preparation and not be able to compensate them. So that is a huge um, priority and, and emphasis here is making these, you know, being able to uh, pay and make these jobs um, appropriate and at parity with kindergarten teachers, show those teachers the same level of importance and respect, we think is going to be really important. And then again, supporting states um, with resources through this plan to be able to build their systems and, and build those pathways so we can bring more educators. Um, this will be a more, um, you know, this will be a, a real, a new opportunity for growth but without wages and without the supports, we know we're not going to be able to bring a significant number of, of new workers in this workforce. I think the pro, you know, if this is a big challenge. I'm not going to sort of shy away from that. We have to invest more in the capacity of states um, and, and resources to be able to build up this, these systems. But I think it's a well understood issue and addressing compensation is going to be one of the, um, one of, one of the significant challenges that will sort of, we hope will be Will, will be addressed as part of this plan if it comes to fruition. So then it's really about how do we help states um, build those systems so that they can recruit um, more workers, um, more individuals into this profession, um, as well as um, make sure that we do not push out and that we build on the assets of the current workforce. Yeah. And, and John, if I could add in there just to really emphasize the importance of the teacher and um, you know, one of the things I'm struck by now in two states rolling out measurement and improvement systems, how many of our child care and family day home teachers have never received feedback on their practice? And, you know, you, when you talk to the teacher of infants, and we always call them educators, no matter the setting, no matter the background credentials they come in with, it's a radical concept that somebody might come in and focus on their strengths, treat them as an education professional, and really help them think about how they could improve what they're doing as they sort of separate from the conversations of BAs or CDAs, but really focus on day in, day out. How do we help you grow as a professional? And I've been placed symbolically to be a part of moving this to education and really recognizing our folks as educators. I'd argue that we want to lead with compensation for all of the reasons that Miriam noted, both in terms of recognizing the incredible assets of our current workforce and that like, we have tried leading with requirements first, and that has not been successful. And when we have, we end up, as we do with our K-12 workforce, with an 80% white workforce or 85% white workforce, right? And so 
for, you know, regardless of kind of how we got to this place, really focusing on the competencies of this current workforce, right, in addition to some of their kind of demographic assets is really important. Um, in Virginia, we took the preschool development grant and just turned that directly into incentives for teachers. It wasn't exactly what was called for. They were really looking for a needs assessment and strategic planning, but I was basically like, enough with the consultants, like, let's just pay the teachers directly. We didn't have quite enough to go around, so we were able to do a random control trial and partner with researchers at the University of Virginia and really show that just giving somebody the equivalent of 75 cents more per hour can cut turnover in half. 75 cents more per hour can cut turnover in half. When you think about the investments around training somebody to provide high-quality interactions, to use a research-based, evidence-based curriculum, and to be able to address the incredible needs of kids, if she walks out, all of that investment in her walks out, right? There's no greater loss to the kid, to the provider, to the system. And so really thinking through how do we lead with compensation? How do we directly pay in the places where we can't kind of put the provider in this impossible position where if we sort of, for example, just focus with wage requirements, but we don't give you enough money to meet those wage requirements, and you've got to get it from your middle income and your low income families, but really think about sort of this sort of direct subsidization of educators um, to, 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 to turn down that, that, that turnover, and I think that's really important. The other thing that I think is really exciting, and just, you know, hopefully that folks will use some of the, the kind of set-aside dollars for both the American Rescue Plan and these other ones, we have to build strong technology infrastructure. In Virginia, we're building a system that basically will allow us to understand which kids are in which classroom, have a set of quality elements about those classrooms. What are the interactions like? What is the curriculum used? What is the background of the educator? What types of professional development are she or he getting? And then to tie that to outcomes, right? And as soon as you build our licensing platform to tie health, safety, and learning and to be able to track that over time. But I think we're, we're at a precipice. We know that many of our current workforce don't have the time nor can afford or historically have not had access to higher education. So a bachelor's degree cannot be the answer for the entirety of this workforce. But if not that, what? And I think kind of building the data system like we're building in Virginia, partnering with higher ed partners to then kind of come up with, here are the core competencies. Here's how you measure it. Here's the kind of things that matter most in terms of improvement over time so that there's a nimble, more affordable way. We've seen this in other sort of random industries from welding to shipbuilding, right, where they've figured out how to, on the job, prepare people to be effective and to improve over time. And I'm hopeful that these resources and the kind of recognition that Miriam sort of noted to this workforce, let's lead with compensation. Let's focus on kind of how we clearly define and actively help folks build and strengthen competencies. Um, and then let's figure out how we make this a career rather than a, a stopover. So I do just want to make clear that in the actual plan, there's room for both, right? So right now, as it's stated, it would bring all um, folks who work in early childhood, our, our key educators, up to a um, living wage, right? Um, at the same time, there's um, also a push that they would meet the same requirements as K-12. So if in the long term, we really want a system in which um, teaching a three-year-old is valued just as much as teaching a, a fifth grader or, you know, AP calculus in high school, whatever you want to name, I don't think there's any way around really getting to a place in the workforce of the future where those requirements are the same. So I, I think the plan, as I see it, really allows both. And Miriam is, you know, 
actively working on this in DC. So she should let, um, um, you know, weigh in or correct anything that I'm, I'm saying, but, you know, these are, um, these are about retaining the workforce that we have and honoring them, but also thinking ahead as we recruit a whole bunch of new teachers and train them and get up, up to speed the workforce of the future, you know, making sure that early childhood doesn't continue to be in this sort of lesser than um, position. So again, I think it's an, it's an and, not an or. Miriam, did you want to, to respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we, I've been working, I feel like in my professional career on these issues for, for so long, um, early on, I, I, you know, the, uh, de- debates around a bachelor's requirements, um, were, uh, I think absent, at least in my experience, really in my career, very devoid of the con- the issues of equity and, you know, what Jenna talked about around, you know, do you lead, especially without addressing compensation, um, do you lead with degrees and ha- end up with a predominantly monolingual English-speaking workforce, right, similar to K-12? Um, there's important lessons learned in Head Start um, from this experience, um, as we've had bachelor's degree requirement um, for over a decade now in Head Start. Um, Head Start, uh, you know, has significantly increased across the country, the number of uh, bachelor's degree teachers. Um, they have, um, it is opened up, you know, that we see that they have be able, been able to retain diversity um, and, and the racial and linguistic composition, um, more opportunities for women of color to get degrees in that program. However, um, without the compensation, you know, that has led to more debt, um, and it leads to more turnover. Um, we know because if they cannot be com- well compensated once they earn their degrees and stay in Head Start, they're going to go to other opportunities in the field, um, including in the K-12 system um, where they can be compensated. So this is a, um, you know, a really um, important balancing act at the same time. Um, we So we know compensation, as Jenna said, we have to lead with compensation. Um, we need to invest in this workforce, including the incumbent workforce and make sure that that the job is there for the new and the current, right? That 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 they are treated as parity. You know, I think that the the other consideration here in complexity is again is what I talked about building the capacity um, in um, in states, right, to be able to build the programs. The programs are not there right now. The programs in the way that Jenna was talking about, um, I know this was the case in Oregon as well, programs that are accessible to a workforce, uh, to individuals and educators that will be working while getting, um, you know, participating in these programs. So how do we bring coursework? And this is where I really think states are innovating, right? Like how do we bring contextualized professional development that's credit bearing, how to create multiple paths ways, um, you know, for this workforce to be able to advance um, in their preparation um, and their skill, including towards degrees programs, keeping that pathway open, I think is critically important. You know, um, again, early on in the career, there was not enough attention to this endless debate of degrees or not degrees with respect to diversity. And now I think, um, you know, it's evolved and there is a, fortunately a lot of attention to that issue. So 
how do we then really um, keep that North Star of, you know, I believe personally, you know, women of color want opportunities. Um, um, and we have data to show that to, to advance in terms of degrees, because degrees at some point will be the key to the profession. Do you move up? Do you get to be a director? Do you get to be an instructional coach? Like, what does advancement look like, right? We're in the, con- we're talking about the context of education where degree requirements already exist. And so I think it's about really working, building capacity and pathways, supporting this workforce, working towards um, that goal and paying attention to equity and making sure that um, we continue to keep that focus um, first and foremost on this issue of we want to we want to keep a workforce um, that reflects the children and families in the community. Our our the diversity in the young child population in this country um, is 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 extraordinary. It's they're more diverse than the current K twelve. Uh, a child population that is going to keep happening. We that is so critical to this quality conversation. And so um, we know that uh, barriers exist to um, degrees, and I think that's been a big problem um, that has been stuck after the compensation issue. How do we open up more accessible programs um, and bring them to educators? And and I think we we can do that in um, in this proposal. I'm excited about the resources that are going to be coming to states to really be able to allow them to scale the things that they know are working that that meet the needs of this workforce and that will be successful in in attracting new people um, to meet the qualifications. So. Thanks. And Miriam, you mentioned Head Start, and I'm, I'm curious about how, how you or, or anyone else is, is thinking about Head Start fitting into what could be a pretty rapid expansion of, of seats. And I'm going to couple this with a question that we got um, from Kathleen McHenry at the Bipartisan Policy Center. Uh, Kathleen's question is, curious to hear how, ED, how Ed is thinking of working with HHS at the federal level on the promises of the Biden administration and what that might mean for states that typically receive their federal funding from HHS. Um, so maybe uh, I'll start that with you, but any any thoughts uh, from Chris or Jenna too on Head Start and sort of where it fits into this? Sure, um, absolutely. Um, I, so I guess first I'll start with Head Start. And, you know, in, in our country, in, in so many states and so many communities across our country, um, Head Start is um, the, and it is, is, is where the expertise so much of the expertise lies on um, being able to uh, provide preschool education services and high quality infant and toddler um, services. Uh, and so we have to absolutely build on that. That is a priority. We, in this um, proposal, have talked a lot about the mixed delivery system, um, which really means you know be, being open to a range of providers, um, being able to deliver preschool and childcare opportunities. Um, that is important for choices, for families, and and it's also important because we have to build on the expertise um, that is already there in communities. And that is certainly the case with Head Start, particularly when we talk about um, uh, what a, a program should look like and what experiences families should have um, for and children and families in poverty. So this proposal very much thinks about Head Start as a, as a big asset, as a part of this mixed delivery system, as being able to play um, an important role. I know in the interest of time, I have so many thoughts 
thoughts about how we do that and build and the intricacies of how um, we build on the assets of Head Start. But but I'll leave it there and let my other colleagues um, chime in and say that that is absolutely um, an important part of, um, of what we're trying to do within this mixed delivery model and in this policy. Um, with respect to Ed and HHS um, co-administration, um, we th- this is a huge moment um, for public education in our country in the K-12 system, right? The, the reality of the American Families Plan and what we would be able to do to increase access to early care, um, early childhood, high-quality child care, preschool opportunities is huge. So we are 100% invested in, in our administration and working very closely with HHS on on supporting the success of this policy. Um, and, you know, we can't look at this as, oh, the program lives in one department and not another. So it doesn't, you know, impact each other's work. That's not the way the reality is in sort of states. This is a huge moment for K-12, right? To be able to kind of have these, these more robust early childhood opportunities um, and to close the opportunity gap and access to quality early childhood will have a huge impact on, on the K-12 system. Uh, this is an opportunity for our um, early childhood um, for children with disabilities in the in you know the birth to five years, particularly to to I think to really see the promise of FAPE um, for early childhood special education students come into reality with the, with the preschool proposal. So we know we need to be working really really closely together. Um, and so that is you know our secretary is committed to that. The secretaries are working together, and we're working together at the staff level and across our administration to be able to ensure that. Um, you know, Ed is a, is a critical partner. We know that last point I'll make is right now, 55% of all of all children in publicly funded preschool are, are served in, in schools. And so schools will need um, support. Um, we're going to need to support states um, really and being able to deliver um, those high quality and scale those high quality programs. And I think that's an important area where we'll, we'll really be partnering um, with HHS to support their part um, in this mixed delivery model. John, one point to add there, and just to emphasize, you know, Head Start as an important partner along with private child care and family day homes as part of this mixed delivery system. And I think that, you know, really recognizing that as an asset, there are things that we want to emulate with K-12, and there are things that are unique and extraordinary about early childhood that we want to preserve. And while school systems in mass closed last year, early childhood programs kept their doors open. And that was enormous in the Commonwealth of Virginia, both in terms of serving families birth to five and school age children who had no place else to go, whether that was because parents were essential worker or simply because they couldn't afford not to go to work. And I think as we look about the kind of thinking through how we stay innovative, it really is making sure that we continue to honor the kind of the mix of public and private. We're very thoughtful about equity and kind of thinking about where the market doesn't work. Um, But Head Start provides a unique set of comprehensive services, right, to its kids and families that not everybody necessarily would prefer, but is essential for those kids and families. Um, And I think really thinking through, you know, and how do we set up the right governance at the federal level, at the state level, and I think there's a ton of work at the local level to think about running portfolios, nobody gets a monopoly, right? As I say, in every single conversation I ever, or webinar I ever presented, there's not a single provider type birth to five in any state in this country and any community in this country that can serve all vulnerable kids birth to five. 
fundamentally, we have to work together. Um, and that, 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 what is it? It's occasionally wonderful collaboration. It's occasionally incredibly fractious and sort of full of friction. But in that, but in that kind of coordination, I think you can actually develop systems that are more individualized and address the unique needs of kids and families. And so really thinking through right with the American Families Plan, how do we, we do that? Um, and Head Start continues to be a really important part of that. Thanks. And actually, that's a good segue. So we got a few questions from, I think, mostly directors of uh, private childcare programs who are wondering, who feel some uncertainty here with what might be ahead and what it means for uh, their futures in, in running those programs. So here, I'll, I'll read one, but I think this, this represents a few questions. So this is from Denise Tuma. From, she's the head of school at a Montessori program. Do you have a forecast of how pre-universal preschool initiatives may impact small business owners who've provided childcare for many years? And that could be a forecast or just sort of how, how are we thinking about uh, piecing together that, you know, that private provision with whatever else is up? Yeah, so um, I, I'll say that, um, I'll bring up that term again of, of a mixed delivery system and it's something that is a, a, a huge priority. Um, for this administration, it is reflected in this policy. And honestly, it is, it is uh, uh, really, I think, the, the direction and the reality that we're moving in states, which is that, um, you know, quality, uh, quality early care and education um, can happen in a variety of settings, right? There, there is no evidence for us to say, oh, there's this particular setting is better than this. It needs to be well resourced. Um, the educators need to be supported. Um, we think that, um, you know, a variety of choices need to be available for families to be able to meet um, their needs as they think about, right? Where, where is the best preschool education opportunity for them? And so, um, um, I'll, you know, I'll say again, this, um, the, the model and the way that this policy is being structured is to really be able to give states the resources to be able to build on all of the assets and all of the providers, including um, home-based child care providers, family child care providers, right, these small businesses. We know they are already providing care um, and not, you know, um, it's, this is about being able to subsidize more of that care um, so that they can deliver quality services to the children and families of they serve. And so there is absolutely an opportunity here in preschool and in, in this pre universal preschool program for our current um, and future child care providers to be able to be to, to be able to deliver preschool, high quality preschool in their community to more children. So. Great, thank you. And we, we have just a, a couple of minutes left. So um, I'll close with with kind of one more question. And Miriam, you just touched on this. And Chris, I heard you speak to it uh, briefly before. But we got some questions about what is high quality early childhood education? Like, what does it look like? What does a good program do? Um, quickly, and I know that's a big question, but do you have thoughts kind of quickly on what, what, what is it? Like, what, what, uh, what does a good early childhood program look like? I think probably the best hallmark is joy, right? If we're going to be quick about it, you walk in and everyone is happy and engaged. And uh, part of that joy is getting stretched in their development. And so, they're being offered really rich learning opportunities, um, both from, you know, how to play with your friend when you have a conflict through, you know, why does a seed grow, right? Really deep kind of questions around science um, that you see those sorts of things um, in a happy early childhood classroom. It looks a little, a little different if they're one than if they're, you know, about to go to kindergarten, but those are really some of the most essential elements. 
Jenna or, or Miriam in a sentence? <laughs> what's, what's go to early childhood in a sentence? Oh, go Miriam and you go, and I'll go. I, 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 I echo what Chris said. She said it beautifully. Oh my gosh. I sound like the Grinch ending here, but you know, I, I do think something that is intentionally promoting learning and development has to be a part of that. And I, and I think that every single one of the educators I've met have come to this work for the reasons of joy, but the sort of the, the thing I am most proud of in my work across two states is how we have built on that energy and that passion, but help people day to day put in practices that meet the needs of their kids and promote their academic and social emotional learning and development. So it's that joy plus the intentionality around promoting kids to learn and grow and thrive, particularly those infants, toddlers, preschoolers. Okay. Now I have to add one thing. Now that Jenna went, I have to, uh, children's um, culture and their language and their identity has to be seen as part of this quality vision, right? This, that, that cannot be erased and we have to be more intentional about supporting um, children's um, cultural and positive cultural and racial identity and building on their linguistic assets as well. And multiple languages, early quality, early childhood shouldn't be a subtractive language experience for children either. And it unfortunately is too often. So that's part of quality. Thank you all. That was very, very well put. And I mean, this is an amazing moment for early childhood. This was a terrific conversation. So let me just close by thanking our panelists and thanking uh, everyone at home for, for uh, staying on with us. So we, we hope to see you again soon. A team of amazing colleagues helps make the Brookings Cafeteria possible. My thanks go out to audio engineer Gaston Reberedo, Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, who does the book interviews, my communications colleagues Marie Wilkin, Adriana Pita, and Chris McKenna for their collaboration, and finally, to Soren Messner-Zidel and Andrea Rosato for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, The Current, and our events podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places and visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.